Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in. In this episode, we'll explore the work of IPO Education Foundation's 2018 Inventor of the Year Award winner, David Hall. Hall will be honoured on December 11th at the 45th Annual Award Ceremony, which aims to increase public awareness of current inventors and how they benefit the nation's economy and quality of life. In this story, we'll learn how a million-dollar race in the desert birthed the autonomous vehicle movement. We'll dive deep into Hall's invention process, and we'll even hear from a company that's using his technology in some unexpected and wonderful ways. My name is David Hall. I'm the CEO and founder of Velodyne LiDAR. David Hall is in his 60s, has blonde hair, and resembles the famous actor Robert Redford. He has loved the water since he was young, and it's reflected in his choice of housing. Hall and his wife live on a houseboat which is bolted to land in Alameda, California, just a short drive from his company's research and development headquarters. A small island-like section of land on the northeastern edge of San Francisco Bay, Alameda is separated from Oakland by a 15-second ride across a short, white, modern and geometrically curving bridge. His company, Velodyne, began building high-end bass speakers in the 1980s, For more than a decade now, they've also been manufacturing a critical tool for driverless cars, LiDAR. David may one day be responsible for bringing autonomous vehicles to widespread use in the 21st century, but his inventiveness was largely inspired by a family member who was innovating in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Well, I had my grandfather to look up to, and uh, he had a very similar interest to me, so we both had a bonding of about how, how much fun it was to work on this stuff. And I got a lot of a lot of confidence from him that, to know that the excitement I felt was real because he also had it. So I think I learned more from my grandfather than, than anywhere else. The confidence that Hall learned from his grandfather would quickly be put to use. After earning a degree in mechanical engineering at Cleveland's Case Western Reserve University, Hall leapt directly into self-employment. I brag that I've never actually had a 9-to-5 job. I'm proud of that, by the way. The young engineer began operating his own machining shop in Boston in the 1970s, bidding on contracts from major medical and industrial companies. Working as his own boss, he learned many rudimentary business lessons that would come in handy later in his career. Although Hall landed some large contracts for his shop, he grew disappointed when his work wasn't earning much recognition. And then with the machine shop doing something industrial, it's like, well, nobody ever heard of me. So I thought, well, you know... Why not try to make a consumer brand name? And that, uh, you know, the goal was that I'd be able to walk down the street one day and uh, stand at a corner and yell out my brand name. And, and somebody, maybe not too many, but uh, somebody to say, yeah, I'd heard of that. And uh, so that's what, uh, that's the singular motivation I went into trying to get a consumer brand product out there. For his first consumer product, he found inspiration in the familiar. Well, actually, so I'd worked on this tachometer for my grandfather's boat, and then I, uh, I turned that into a commercial product. So that was actually my first product. That was done in the, in the late 70s. That product uh, sold for over 30 years, and it provided the cash I needed to uh, start the, uh, the Velodyne audio business. Hooked on his first big commercial success, Hall focused his efforts on building superior bass speakers. Specifically, he built new electronic sensors that allowed his speakers to play much louder without any of the typical distortions that would come at that level of volume. It allowed the speaker to play 
uh, louder and also cleaner than anybody had had done before. And so this had coincidentally happened at about the same time as the compact disc had been in, been uh, introduced, and, and we were able to reproduce that clean bass deeper and uh, with more feeling than anybody had done before. So we sort of opened up the whole market for uh, this low, deep, deep end bass that then then matured into the whole home theater home theater business. By this time, Hall had cemented his reputation as a great engineer, but he was developing very serious business instincts as well. In fact, Hall found a powerful ally that he would call on throughout his career, intellectual property. Yeah, I had uh, IP protection on the loudspeakers that kept everybody else out of the business for, for quite the length of the patent, actually. So, uh, and we got into a couple of lawsuits that uh, we prevailed in. So uh, that let me uh, have the entire world of uh, high-end subwoofers all to myself for quite a period of time. Hall goes even further when outlining the importance of intellectual property to his goals as an inventor. Well, at the end of the day, I tell everybody our only product around here really is intellectual property. And that's what we're in the business of inventing. And the way the world's working is that we invent the intellectual property and then we license out the manufacturing. So I know I manufacture now, but that's in the end, uh, there's plenty of people in the world that know how to manufacture, but not that many people know how to invent. So I, I encourage everybody around here to think that our, our product is intellectual property. To help us understand Hall's unique disposition, we spoke with reporter Alan Ownsman. My name is Alan Ownsman. I'm senior editor for Future Mobility at Forbes magazine. Ownsman, who has profiled David Hall for Forbes magazine, helped us understand why he isn't your typical tech entrepreneur. He's not a character like, say, Elon Musk, who certainly courts a lot of public attention and is a fairly high-profile CEO. Dave is pretty much, you know, head down, work in the lab, try to try to solve a problem. So he's not, you know, an MBA guy or, or a money guy or, or some 20-year-old kid who's dreamed up some amazing new software and got a lot of funding for it. He's, you know, he had established a successful company and then sort of made this uh, lateral move into something very, very different. After decades of success in the speaker business, Hall became bored with the process. He felt like Velodyne had just become a sales organization rather than a company that makes important engineering advancements. His natural curiosity took over, and Hall began to explore new avenues for his work. This journey led to an involvement with a TV program called Robot Wars, where two combat-ready robots battle head-to-head until only one is left standing. David and his team designed a robot called Drillzilla, which experienced some success battling other robots. In one instance, Drillzilla famously lit a robotic clown on fire for a spectacular victory. Still, Hall needed a bigger test. He needed a grand adventure. In 2004, he became aware of a curious new dilemma, driverless cars. There are many unique challenges faced when designing a safe, autonomous vehicle. Uh, First of all, you do have to start with a vision system that's detecting objects and things in your path. And that is primarily the job of the cameras for the most part. And and certainly in the early days, overwhelmingly something done by camera with, with radar assistance. Radar can give you, um, can, can, you know, detect things very far out. It can detect hard objects. Radar is not very good at soft objects. So, you know, people, animals, things like that. Radar is not 
terribly useful for. That information flows in and then has to be understood. So with a human, you know, what we see with our eyes, our brain interprets and we can understand what's in our path. Uh, that has to all be done with software. It must be able to both notice, oh, that's a rock, that's a bush, uh, that's a hole, and detect hazards like that. Uh, and that is a very difficult thing to do. The software required to do that was fairly simple um, in the early days, but that was the initial task. And um, that software has to run on a, on a fairly powerful computer because this needs to be done rather quickly, almost instantaneously. But, you know, human drivers, pedestrians, we are unpredictable. Uh, we don't like to wait, and sometimes we don't follow the rules when we're on the road or on the sidewalk. Autonomous vehicles being introduced into that environment have to figure out <laughs> how to navigate unpredictable behavior. And this is a big challenge. Um, it, you know, the people working on it believe it's solvable, but um, we're really still at the early days. Uh, the technologies will be commercialized. There will be things like autonomous trucks and autonomous ride services, uh, autonomous delivery services, but it's going to come gradually and safety will be a top priority. This must be safe to introduce these systems. Um, you can't just drop them in the wild and see what happens. One organization that valued a solution to this problem was DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the US Department of Defense. In 2004, they launched the DARPA Grand Challenge, a 150-mile driverless car race through the Mojave Desert. The team, whose self-driving vehicle finished first, would win the prize of $1 million. Fifteen groups from top universities and corporations assembled all-star teams of engineers to field entries. Well, the first event, it was, it was held uh, in, in the Mojave Desert, and um, not surprisingly, you had a lot of teams that, that just couldn't even finish. It was fairly open in terms of what you could enter as a vehicle, and you did have to navigate desert terrain. All of the vehicles, for the most part, had some sort of vision system, a computer and software that had been developed by the teams um, individually. So all of these, these vehicles were bespoke and, and quite different. You know, 14 years ago, um, there's really no existing industry to supply a lot of this stuff. So many of the sensors were invented. Uh, the computers were, were designed specifically for this. So every team came up with, uh, with a different recipe for how they thought this would work. Olmsman particularly remembers one entry from Carnegie Mellon University, who called their vehicle Sandstorm. The, the Carnegie Mellon uh, vehicle was this sort of massive Jeep-like thing that, um, you know, the sensors were enormous, uh, you know, huge stereoscopic cameras. That one was, you know, not something that you would want to see on a city street parading there, but this was an off-road competition. Uh, but these tended to be heavy, bulky vehicles, pickup trucks, uh, SUVs, heavy-duty vehicles that could handle the off-road terrain. And they were all just packed to the gills with what, by today's standards, looks like just enormously oversized sensors and cameras. The first year of the challenge, none of the vehicles finished the race. In fact, it was such a failure that the furthest distance travelled by any team was seven out of the course's 150 miles. Vehicles experienced many different types of failures. Some couldn't find the road and others were spooked by non-existent obstacles. One truck flipped over on a turn and finished its efforts upside down. There were even two teams who couldn't get their vehicles to move at all. 
Hall found himself surrounded by dozens of the top engineers in the world, all failing miserably at a significant problem. A problem that, if solved, could revolutionise the transportation industry forever. Well, I was kind of a Woodstock for nerds. The advantage I got out of the first challenge is you get to talk to everybody about what what their problems are and what their successes were and what their concerns were. And, uh, and that led me to come up with a product that addressed the combination of what I'd heard from everybody talking and feeling. Hall was hooked, and his joyful approach to problem-solving took over. He quickly focused his decades of experience on improving a relatively old tool, something called LiDAR. LiDAR is an acronym for light, distance, and range. And essentially what's happening is a pulsed laser beam is going out, hits an object in its path, and the information that it sends back gives you both depth, height, and width. So you are getting a 3D 3D information back from, from objects, which is very helpful. Existing LiDAR systems work well for mapping and for tasks that didn't require immediate information. An older LiDAR could make a beautiful 3D map of an area, but it might take five minutes to compile the image. For autonomous vehicles to work safely, their computers would need an instantaneous image. Someone needed to drastically improve LiDAR's performance. And then by the time I actually started building it, I had the entire LiDAR worked out of my mind. I just rehearsed it all in my mind so much that when I sat down, I could just build it. And there really wasn't any decision-making at that point. Ahead of that was a year of of, uh, what I think is the most fun because you get to uh, think about all the different scenarios and all the different ways. And and you're really after trying to find the best way to put it together. And uh, and you have to sort through all the different scenarios and critique each one in your mind. throw out the bad ideas and hopefully keep the good ones. That's the process I like best. When Hall finally sat down to build his LiDAR, he did a few things differently. Instead of using one laser, like traditional LiDAR, he installed 64. He also shifted his system from the front hood of a car to the roof and made his LiDAR system spin very quickly in 360-degree rotations. With the right computer processing power, he could now provide a nearly instantaneous 3D model of the environment. Oldsman explains the advantage that Hull provided. What is happening in today's LiDAR that's being used in autonomous vehicles is the creation of a point cloud. A point cloud is is a 3D map stitched together from a series of pulsed laser beam images that are coming back and being assembled very quickly. So an autonomous vehicle, a modern autonomous vehicle with LiDAR, is getting a map of the world constantly in real time everything around it, uh, 360 degrees in three dimensions. And that's very helpful because LIDAR, unlike radar, also detects soft objects. So if a pedestrian walks in front of a vehicle, the LIDAR system is essentially painting a point cloud image of that person. It's not as precise as human vision, but it's sort of an outline. And the system can say, that's a person, you know, be careful. Whereas radar would have only given you, there is a hard object ahead of us. Uh, We need to avoid that. LIDAR goes a little bit beyond that and can detect, you know, bicyclists and bushes and dogs and and things that, that one might encounter. The point cloud is incredible to witness. Picture a landscape seen from overhead like a video game. The world is black by default. Hal's LiDAR then paints everything else in the environment with a series of tiny, vibrant neon lines that, when understood together, indicate exact shapes and precise real-time movements. 
the imagery is so beautiful that Radiohead used point clouds to create the music video for their song House of Cards. We asked Hall about seeing the first point cloud created by his Velodyne LiDAR. You know, I finally turned it on and, and uh, out came the image and uh, the image did not disappoint me. So uh, it was everything I had imagined it would be and more. Yeah, it was kind of fun, you know, you spend six months working, hey, this is going to be really cool when it's done. And then you turn it on and it really is cool. Then came the time to design the housing for Velodyne's new LiDAR system. The opportunity we had to commercialize the product, so then it... Uh, then I went to work redesigning it and put a lot of effort into it, uh, cosmetics, so it, I gave it that shape, but it has that kind of a distinctive, uh, somebody says it's a Kentucky box, uh, Kentucky chicken bucket, but I don't know. I think it's more, a little bit more beautiful than that. The LiDAR model that people compared to a KFC bucket is shaped like one. It's about the same size, with the top a bit wider than the base. But other than that, it's quite different. Its color is silver and the top is closed. About a quarter of the outside is a flat glass window through which dozens of custom-built lasers shine, their light invisible to the human eye. But more important than its appearance is how beautiful his solution is for the people who use it. The type of invention you're looking for is, uh, is described by one word, it's called elegant. And uh, if the solution you have, there are many brute force solutions, but what you're really looking for is, uh, is an elegant solution to somebody else's problems or whatever you have. So, you know, as I keep looking at it, it says, is this elegant? And if not, then I, I kind of throw it away and look for some other solution for it. So that's the word you're looking for is elegant. And other major companies have taken notice. Hall's client list has included Google, Bing, Ford, and Baidu. Caterpillar has even outfitted their gigantic mining trucks with Velodyne's LiDAR. Their autonomous mining efforts have been operating successfully in Western Australia for several years. Hall's solution is so elegant that it can be adopted for purposes unrelated to autonomous driving. So this making the 3D maps uh, was something that I never had any thought that anybody would ever want to do, but yet uh, it turned out to be have a lot of enthusiasm behind it. To explore some surprising uses of Velodyne's LiDAR, we spoke with Jason Littrell and Rob Noah of BOE Systems in Kansas City. My name is Jason Littrell, CEO of BOE Systems. My name is Rob Noah, Code Monkey. Jason began his efforts in industrial drone photography and found demand for his work from Midwestern farmers who needed accurate analysis of huge areas of land. A year into his efforts, an energy company asked him to cover a much larger area, so he began looking for better tools. His search for laser-based devices led him to find Velodyne's LiDAR, and soon, a special experiment began to take shape. Jason and his partner Rob attached a LiDAR device to their custom-built drone and began to gather data. The initial result was not good. That's Rob Noah, who handles the software at BOE Systems. Where we learned a very valuable lesson was flying our unit over a field. Fields don't have a lot of edges. They tend to be very nice and soft and smooth. So simultaneous location and mapping algorithms do very poorly when the world isn't sharp. It isn't jagged. It doesn't have a lot of contrast relief that you can use to map to. We would land it, collect the data, load it onto our PCs, and then process the data into some 3D representation of the world we just captured. And so, as you can imagine, the first time you hook one of these up and solder a bunch of wires together and get the power supply connected and the TCP, IP, UDP data packets collected and everything merged together, we started calling it the exploding flower picture because it, it looked like a, a piece of modern art. Jason and Rob knew that they were onto something special and worked long hours to eventually gather an image that reflected reality. What really brought it together was getting the timing right. The 
interpolation between ver- various points of measurement uh, in attitude and position, along with the LIDAR data that are streaming in at a much higher rate, by the way. So the LIDAR data are coming in much more quickly than our positioning data are. We're putting all of that together. The first time we put it together and we actually saw a nice picture, it was it was it's a pretty magical moment to see that for the first time. After, especially after, after looking at hundreds and hundreds of exploding flowers, it's very nice to see reality as we know it come through and we knew we really had something. It's a it's a remarkable product to be able to measure those distances and positions of the real world as we're moving through the air and flopping around on the on a, on a drone. Although we have dampening systems and other ways to deal with that, you're still moving and wobbling pretty dramatically. But to see it for the first time was a a pretty amazing thing. And when you know you have something, you know everything's going right. It wasn't perfect. We know that. Slightly better calibration, slightly better interpolation, slightly better algorithms that merge all of this data together and create the final 3D map. All of that is stuff we worked very hard on and continue to try to improve. Through focused work and endless improvements, Jason and Rob have taken LiDAR imaging far beyond its intended use for driverless cars. Really understanding the amount of applications and industries this could be used towards um, not only surveying, but utilities, energy, uh, being able to, to show the inlets, the ditches, curbs, sidewalks, power lines, power poles, being able to scan manhole covers, uh, locating these, these, these objects in space and time. It brings a, a lot of insight into for a lot of businesses and infrastructure, public works, and not having to go out and, and get that data somewhere else. We had a recent uh, project where there's a lot of earthwork removal needed to be done, and then we prepped our flight, flew the site, and then what we did from there was we created a DWG file or surface model, and then they could take this three, three, four weeks later, go back, and then they would know how much volume or aggregate they would have removed from the site, and then they can calculate that to know either how much they want to, how much aggregate they have to sell, how much they removed, how much more they have to trim off this site to get down to the um, base layer or construction level. It really felt like we were putting together soft software and hardware that was going to work for a a lot of different companies and, and people in general. In the near future, BOE systems are focused on gathering data with even more precision and speed. Rob excitingly shared his vision with us. Imagine stickiness. Imagine you're collecting that LiDAR data. You want it to stick to the surface you're, you're painting, whether to say it's the surface of a building or a curb or a power line or a power pole. You want it to stick, but you don't want to cheat because if you cheat and constantly shift your collected data to make it fit reality, you run into tons of problems by having moving cars, moving people, moving everything. You can actually result in, in very warped, jello-y looking images that don't reflect the real world. So we don't want to let ourselves do that. We want to know the mathematical errors of the data we collect. We want to always keep that mathematical error rate accurately computed and and available. But then within the known error, we want to be a little bit sticky in what we're capturing and do it all while we're flying down the road, ideally at 70 miles an hour. Thanks to high demand for LiDAR, from major automakers and even unexpected places like from BOE Systems, Paul is currently in the middle of addressing what is potentially the greatest engineering challenge that he's ever faced, scaling his manufacturing. Fortunately, our inventor has a big new idea. He's building a gigantic, state-of-the-art, fully robotic manufacturing facility. Aside from assembling one million LiDAR units per year, Paul aims to eventually operate his futuristic mega factory with the lights off. 
Here's Alan Ownsman again. This is being done in a facility that is to be entirely automated. It's a robotic, automated plant. These are, these are very sensitive optical devices, and so they do need to be produced with, with a great amount of care uh, for consistency. And um, that is work that, that automated manufacturing systems are generally very good at, doing exactly the same thing every time again and again and again. Um, there are certain things that, that, that robots can do better than humans. Um, and in this case, to get this very high-volume level of production and hold down costs, he is trying to create a fully robotic factory to make these devices. We asked Hall what challenges he's facing at this stage of his expansion. You know, there's an awful lot of robots down there. They're pretty ornery things to work with because they don't really have any common sense. And, uh, and, and at the end of the day, they require a lot of programming. And there's kind of a shortage of people that can actually write programs of any sort. You know, if anybody wanted to get into the programming business, I urge them that there's, I think there's a worldwide shortage of people that can write code. So, so maybe Elon and I are in the same boat. It's like he's sleeping on the factory floor. And, and sometimes I'm tempted to do that myself, but of course I don't. So I'd say it's... Uh, a struggle to make this product, make me products, and, and some of it is that no one else has any experience making these things, so you're really on your own. You know, some of that's a, a barrier of entry that's, that's uh, uh, is substantial, and if you can make this stuff and no one else can, well, that's a, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So at the end of the day, the product is supposed to go out the door, so some of it is you just have to go, you have to find a way to get it done. Hal, who says he has a new idea every 10 minutes? has built a career by capitalizing on only a few of them. We asked him how he knows that he's ready to commit to the long road of manufacturing and marketing a product. Because put to the marketplace is, is a big deal, and, and you better really know that uh, what you're doing is pretty close to right on or at least your best shot at it anyway. And then, uh, you know, once you're in the marketplace, uh, you know, you have a lot of confidence to go forward because, you know, the worst thing to do is you start making your product and then, you know, then a couple of months into it, you say, hey, I got a better way to make this thing. And then now what do you do? It's like, oh, well, you're not making the best product you can and you're already committed to, to run it on the manufacturing line and uh, now you're in the chaos mode. So you're a lot better off to put in all that effort ahead of the time. And then once you start making it, you just don't look back. You just say, hey, I'm done. I've, I've spent my time thinking about this thing. It's the best way to do it. If I miss something too bad, I'll get it another 20 years or so. And you just go for it. And a lot of it is, you know, you got to make that decision. If you're going to go for it, you go for it. And, and, and you better have done your homework. And yeah, it's just like being an athlete, you know, it's like, you've, you know, you got to do your training and that training is like, uh, is doing the research on your invention before you, you pull the trigger to put it into production and go to market it. Velodyne's march to success won't be easy. There are at least 50 other companies manufacturing LiDAR devices, each with the incentive of one day winning over the entire global automotive industry. But Alan Oldsman helps us see how Hall's early aggressive manoeuvring, including strong use of intellectual property, has firmly planted Velodyne in the driver's seat. You know, with regard to patenting, that's absolutely essential. The last decade, Velodyne has been in such a unique position because of this very strong early first mover status. They really owned the automotive LiDAR space. They're, they're very well um, positioned to remain competitive. And I think because of the intellectual property that Velodyne has, they may also see in the future licensing revenue because Dave was pretty, uh, pretty aggressive in, 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 in patenting his technology. So that could be another future revenue stream for the company.
The story of autonomous vehicles is in its early stages and there are many obstacles ahead. But obstacles seem to put David Hall at ease. In fact, his current position sounds a lot like the time he spent with his grandfather, solving new problems every day with the confidence that a solution can always be found. As proof of his boundless creative fire, Hall has somehow found the time to develop an advanced boating system he calls Martini. The boat uses real-time image processing and a series of joints and pontoon floats to smoothly coast over wakes and waves. It resembles an erector set that can walk on water. That's right, aside from providing the best imagery an autonomous vehicle could ask for, Hall is building boats that are safe for people who get seasick. He's already in development with a major shipmaker to expand his new marine technologies. If you're especially lucky, you may see him and his engineers cruising around the San Francisco Bay near Velodyne's research and development headquarters. Hall clearly recognises that there are endless options available to inventors looking to make an impact. From his point of view, the waters of invention are warm, and he encourages everyone to jump in and join him. Probably never been a better time in the history of mankind to invent things uh, because of the, the tools we have now. We have uh, uh, this 3D modeling, and you can model uh, integrated circuits, and then you can model uh, almost anything now with uh, uh, sitting at your computer. And then you can do all the research you want by uh, searching the web. So the, the, there's an incredible amount of productivity we have today that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. And because of that, there's a whole, and, and, and then add to that the fact that the whole world is one big marketplace. And it used to be that you had to, if something high end, you could sell it in the United States and that was it. But now the, the rest of the world is anxious to buy new and unusual things. So there's a, incredible opportunities out there that, that nothing like this has existed in the past about that you can come up with a very, very niche product that, that satisfies just a, a small need for a handful of people and be very successful doing that because you can reach them using the internet and you can manufacture and using uh, worldwide resources. And then we also have 3D printing and stuff like that. It's just a wonderful advancement in the ability to, to ply the trade of the inventor. So I think this is a field day for inventors, and uh, I encourage anybody to, to take advantage of this while it lasts. Thanks to our guests, Alan Oldsman, Jason Littrell, Rob Noah, and David Hall. I'm Lauren Hutchinson, and thanks for tuning into this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwill Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.